Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Well, this is already off to a really good start. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I hope this gets easier as we do. It's just kids running around in the back. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> We're not built for quarantines. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Hi, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. Uh, I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nate. hey Nick. Hey. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, want to see what we're up to, uh, want to see when we do live shows, which we're doing right now on Facebook, um, definitely tell, tell everybody about that. Um, so we are uh, Facebook uh, at Barstool Politics, uh, Twitter at Barstool Paul P-O-L. Uh, beers we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Um, the podcast you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com. Uh, a direct link you'll find on all of our social channels. Um, for whatever reason, we can't just get a direct link to it. Um, so just look on there. Um, I had mentioned last week that we were moving the, the podcast to Anchor. We're not going to do that right now. <laughs> Coronavirus kind of put a crimp in my style over the past week, so... That's an, Coron- that's an ongoing process. The coronavirus is a bad thing, Nick. It's just <laughs> causing all sorts of instability. That's definitely one of the worst ones, though, by far. Not being yeah. able to move. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's terrible. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this has just been a maybe the in all the bizarre things that we've talked about over the past three years or so. This might have been the weirdest week by far. Um, and not because of the stuff we normally talk about, but, um, this is something that, that we're going to be talking about for a long time, not, you know, on the podcast, but in general, um, yeah, like what, you know, before we even start, you know, into the, the nitty gritty of it, how has this affected you guys, especially in, in academia? That's, it's been a big deal over the past week or two. It's it's really stunning. We're you know last week at this point when we you know we taped uh, classes were still going, uh, bars and restaurants, all that stuff were still going. Uh, today I had my first online class. We're using Zoom, where everybody joins you know uh, electronically from their home. It's it's stunning. I, I will say we were talking before we went on air. I'm surprised at how easy a lot of this is. I mean, I was I was anticipating the classroom to be a total disaster. Actually, it was it was really good today. I had two classes, one big class, one small class. Uh, we, we were all joined electronically and it's not as good as being in the classroom, but it works. Uh, you know, my daughter just got done with a piano lesson where the teacher joined via Skype, right? I mean, so there's, you know, it's not ideal, but I'm, I'm a bit surprised at how well at this point, again, we're early, how well we're all adapting to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, where I'm, I'm the same way. I, I'm on spring break, but next week I, I go all online. Um, Keene State had a professor that tested positive for coronavirus, so I mean it's 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 here. It's going to impact us, and yeah. So I mean, our house is you know I'm trying to figure out how to teach a college two college classes online. Kelly's trying to figure out how to teach second graders online. Um, <laughs> Jack's trying to figure out how to do high school you know science and and math online. It, it's it's bizarre, and that's not even you know the what it's like going to the grocery store and seeing that there is no bread or toilet paper or meat. Um, so. Yeah, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of rye bread. I went to the store the other day and the bread was all gone, but nobody wants the rye bread or the raisin bread. Apparently, like even if, if like a pandemic hits, people are like, I'm not eating rye bread <laughs> at the store today. Not, like the meat, the 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 uh, butcher area is totally empty except for chicken wings. Just all the chicken Lots wings, of chicken you wings want, everywhere. You know, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you see all of the. The, the posts on social media about people choosing their uh, favorite types of ramen. So nobody's taking the shrimp one. Lots of chicken and beef are gone, but there's <laughs> shrimp to go around for everybody. So it's it'll it'll be OK. It's only um, a matter of time. Right. And then everybody's going to make a run on the shrimp. So it's just, you know, <laughs> just get through it. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's life altering stuff. Um, yeah. I I haven't really talked about it on the podcast before. Um, I'm I'm uh, supposed to be getting married uh, in a few months. Oh, um, yeah. The... <laughs> well, now it might not be happening because the venue canceled on us. Um, the wedding's not till August. Um, we were supposed to fly out to uh, the venues and stuff to this weekend. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Uh, we don't know if uh, my fiance's dress is going to be here on time just because of logistical stuff. Um, and then she's a nurse, too. Uh, so she's seeing... Um, she does pediatric oncology and she's seeing what this is doing to the healthcare system. So in a, a situation where, you know, healthcare workers and, and administrations should be as transparent as possible, you have management telling you, you have to come in no matter what, um, regardless of, you know, the, the risk to yourself. Uh, if you don't, you can be fired and we'll replace you with somebody uh, and that they're going to start putting, if it comes to that, um, coronavirus patients and, and adult patients in pediatric yeah. oncology, yeah. which I find hilarious because you're going to put people like that with a relatively unknown disease right. in with people and children who already have compromised immune right. systems. Right. So, and then they're saying they're not giving accurate numbers on how many people are infected in the hospital or in the state or anything like that. And it's exceptionally scary that, again, the people who should be the most transparent about this are being not they're just not they're just not well, being that and i'm guessing a lot of it's just they don't know the answers yet like every day it seems like there's a new wrinkle that we haven't thought about before i know thinking from the university level um you know my college has been very proactive but at sometimes you know you, you put a statement out and then 24 hours later the world has changed and you have to revisit that it's just uh it really truly is unprecedented times and i i feel you know, for you, Nick, and others, these weddings, that's a big, you know, big deal. You spend a lot of money, you organize your life around it, and then you're basically on hold to see, you know, whether the pandemic clears or not. It's just uh, everything, everything stops. It's bizarre. Um, before we get into, you know, actually talking about this, if you guys are on the live broadcast right now, let us know if you can hear us. Um, if there are any issues, feel free to ask questions, um, anything like that. So have fun with that. We want to see if this actually works. Um, Bill, can you kind of give us a rundown of, of, you know, what's been going on in terms of the, the politics of this mess? 
Absolutely, Nick. You know what? It's time for you to start journaling because we're living through some pretty extraordinary history. And I know you like journaling. Um, Given the nonstop coverage of the coronavirus, we thought it might be useful to step back and take a big picture look at where things are and the political dynamics of it all. As a, as a point of comparison, when we taped last, uh, the episode last week, the U.S. had just passed 1,000 confirmed cases. And now we're close to, what, 8,500? Is that what you said, yeah. Phil? Yep. And that number has shot up. Like when I, when I wrote the outline last night, it was like basically 6,000, and we've added another couple thousand cases since. So last week at this time, schools, universities, bars, restaurants were still all open. That seems like forever ago. Um, uh, the good old days. Yeah, right. Uh, now most of us are working from home and drinking alone in our basement because the bars are all closed. Just yesterday, Trump proposed that $850 billion stimulus following a warning from the, uh, warning from the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mann- Nuchen that the corona pandemic uh, pandemic could drive up U.S. employment to 20 percent. Hmm. Uh, it appears that Trump, even Trump himself, has seen the light. For weeks, Trump has minimized the coronavirus. Uh, but on Tuesday, he told White House reporters, quote, I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. Such and that quote, <laughs> know, it's just wonderful. <laughs> And that quote, I've always viewed it as very serious. Uh, what might have shaken Trump was a study from some Britain's, some of Britain's top infectious disease researchers who predicted that if, the, if aggressive action wasn't taken, 510,000 people would die in Britain and 2.2 million people in the United States. I mean, that I think that figure rattled everybody. Phil, in the course of a week, our lives have been turned upside down. So much to break down. Uh, start us off. Where do, what do you want to talk about? Um. There is a lot to talk about. I mean, we should talk about the the shift in uh, tone from the Trump administration and not just Trump, uh, the Republican Party um, sort of in in general. Um, But I think we we should begin by talking about where we are with this pandemic. I feel like there is a lot of panic going on. uh, And I don't um, know that... I'm not trying to to play down what is happening, like the people should be worried and taking it seriously. But but at the same time, I I don't know. I I, well, so now the stuff I'm going to say might just add to the panic. (laughs) (laughs) So I I mean, I think to to put this all in perspective, right? This is this is our our this is our world for not this is not a two week thing, right? Initially, schools were shutting down for two weeks, and and we're we're looking at. I mean, all of the public health people talk about this social distancing stuff as a as a two to three month uh, or longer process. Um, This is a this is a new reality. Um, Unless you're going to the beach. Yeah, unless you're on the virus and 20 and immortal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Speaking of which, I saw uh, that they've, while they were talking, the Trump administration today was talking about the surge in uh, like 20 somethings, the cases, the cases in Italy, Um, not because they are, well, the number of, of 20 something year olds who are seriously ill which is not that the mortality rate amongst them is higher. It's just that they are like incredibly infected because they're, mm-hmm. they're not abiding by essentially the social restrictions and, and they're, they're going on with their life. So I, th- I think, first of all, the numbers, to go back to the numbers, right? The numbers are, you know, they're, they're going up like eightfold a week. Th- that is because it is spreading, but it's also because we have had no testing, right? There's right. been no testing in place. So we are going to see even, I, I think w- the conclusion I don't want people to draw is we're, we're shutting everything down and the numbers are still skyrocketing. So right. there's a couple of things that are going on there, which is that testing is unavailable, which is there the Trump administration is getting criticism for that and and they should whoever somebody somebody needs to be critiqued for that the fact that we don't have tests is 
is ridiculous. But as tests ramp up, the number of cases are going to go up. And the other part, if you look at Italy and China and other places, when you put a lockdown in place, the impact of that lockdown comes later, right? So people have been exposed for the, you know, all of last week before everything gets lumped in. They are going to start showing up as positives, as sick people in hospitals, at doctor's offices. So these numbers are going to continue to climb. And it doesn't mean that what we're doing isn't working. Um, if, you know, ideally what we'll see is the, the, the sort of leveling off of the curve two weeks from now, which is, you know, Italy has started to see Italy has for like three or four days in a row now had very similar numbers of new cases. So rather than like this exponential growth, they've sort of flattened it out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the part that for me, I mean, this is, this is where we're going to be for a long time. And that's the part that is kind of hard for me to wrap my head around, um, not from a health perspective, like I can imagine, or or from a personal perspective, I can imagine living in my house. It'll, it'll be weird, but staying here until, you know, late May, early June, um, I, you know, I can do that, but it's hard to wrap your head around the impact that will have on the economy or on, you know, uh, the elections that are going on or, or the, like war, the just world politics in general, we're closing the US Canada border, right? Other countries are totally locking down essentially any outside uh, traffic coming in. That That's the stuff that is so unprecedented that it's hard to actually think about how that will play out or what that will look like. I, I can see a way in which we come out of this. The part I can't see is what the world looks like when we come out of it. That's the part right. that, that's that's weird to me. No, I think that's that's such a, a thoughtful point because the, you know we, we'll, we will come out of it, but what globalization looks like afterwards will be different, and and I don't think we're certain what that's going to be. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it could be it could be it could be more globalized. It could also be much much less globalized. I mean, I, th- I think mm-hmm. to your point, Phil. When's the last time that all European borders have been closed? When's the last time that the U.S. Canadian border was closed? And and we're talking about not just a couple of weeks, but likelihood a couple of months that this is going to play out over. And and how does how do we yeah how does the the global economy move past that? Um, it's not going to be easy. Um, there's going to be all sorts of short term political dynamics that are going to make this really really messy. I, yeah, I, I just think we're we're at the cusp of some some really really big changes that that we can't even think about or fully understand until we're we're knee deep in them Mm -hmm. we were talking before we started recording i'm of the mindset and uh, uh, let me preface anything that i say today with i am not an expert on any of this shit i'm giving an opinion you know do not take everything i say especially with a grain of salt um (laughs) i am of the mindset that this has been around a little bit longer than we're aware of the fact that there are still people getting infected who have not had um contact with anybody from a particularly vulnerable po- a vulnerable population or that went to China or anything like that, and it's in the middle of these areas, which realistically should not have cases yet, suggests to me that I think this is more of a an increase in, in testing change than it is about, you know, uh, an infection rate um, situation. Um, having said that, I think that as much as things will change after this is done, people will still spin this from a, a political or e- uh, economic perspective. You know, we went through with uh, primary votes, presidential primary votes yesterday. Uh, you know, we have the, the uh, governor in Illinois uh, saying, well, you know, we're going to shut down everything, but we can't shut down the democratic process. You have 150,000 people going to polling places, crowded polling places. Um, 
just to get this done and either create the perception that we're not trying to interfere with the process, quote unquote, um, or that you just want this done. Uh, and, and that I, I just I think that's beyond reprehensible. And I think we'll see something similar in terms of air travel or, you know, shifts in, uh, um, you know, mortgage borrowing or 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 um, uh, paying hourly workers off or something like that. If the economics aren't there to continue this long term, it's not going to happen. And realistically, I'm I'm not necessarily sure after a a significant, possibly nationwide crackdown quarantine um, after that two week period that it's really necessary to keep those kind of draconian measures in place. Because I feel like based off of what we're seeing, that this is out there. It's in the wild. It's everywhere. Um, and we'll have an increase in testing and the numbers will continue to go up as the the, the testing becomes more prevalent. But I'm not necessarily sure that means the uh, mortality rate will go up or that this is any more virulent or harmful than, you know, it, it was initially. So I don't, I don't think it's any more, I don't think it's more virulent than it was initially, but I think I, this is the part that I think is, is hard for a lot of people to, to sort of wrap their head around is that if the mortality rate's 3%, that doesn't seem awful, right? And, and there was even a Republican senator today that was, I forget who it was, that was basically arguing like to shut our entire economy down for something that has a 3% mortality rate seems crazy. But then you go back to the, you know, the study that you were talking about, Bill, which some people have been critical of. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you talk 3%, right, when you're talking about somebody three and a half percent of uh, the, the thing that was going around today was that uh, during the Civil War, only 2% of the American population was killed during the Civil War. Yes. So 3% so of the American population, 3.5% of the American population is like 10 million people, um, which is, um, so I, I, I think I think that it's where we're going to have to deal with this in phases in that we, we socially isolate for the time being until we can get testing ramped up. Because you look at South Korea, where they have widespread testing, and life has gone on not as usual, but they haven't had to have mass closings of schools and businesses. They just regularly test people. And there are like public checkpoints where your temperature ta is taken and whatnot. But life is able to go on. And, and at some point, we'll get to that point. Um, and, and at some point, we'll have medical interventions in, in terms of vaccines and whatnot. And, and so the question is, you know, how long do we have to live this way? The, the other part of this is that, that I think things will be, we've talked about things will be different after this. And you mentioned, Nick, you know, we're seeing it through a political or an economic lens. I, I think things will be different after this, but I don't know that necessarily that will all be bad. Um, I, you know, the, the, I think there, there, have, there have been lots of times where improvements to society have come from like widespread societal failures or, you know, governmental failures or whatever. And so, you know, there's a, this, I, I don't know what that means, right? But but in terms of whether that is wider access to healthcare or whether that is, you know, Andrew Yang's universal basic income, yeah. which has been, you know, become this hot topic thing. Uh, society could be, it, it will be different in difficult ways. But I think there, that it also that we might come out of this having learned some real lessons in a way that that improves society. You know, we'll, we'll talk some, I guess. I think we'll get to it later. Uh, maybe not. Um, I don't remember exactly what the topics are that we're doing. But, there, you know, there's some evidence that even maybe this, 
you know, shakes us out of our partisan Mm -hmm. divisions. Like maybe this helps us kind of realize that all the fighting that we've been doing is in fact bullshit, right? <laughs> that, right. that we there, there are policy differences and there are important policy differences, but it's not the sort of deeply divisive thing that we've, as we've been playing out for the last um, few few years. Well, this I, is one thing, unlike some of the other stuff that, you know, we spent a lot of time in the US political system debating, I wouldn't say it's silly, but it's, it's these uh, arguments that don't really matter. And now there's something, there's a real crisis, right? Uh, and for the first time, I think in the Trump administration, a real serious global crisis, and you can't play politics with it. The Trump administration initially tried to do that, and there were real consequences for that. So they're, they're shaping up the same thing globally, right? You're seeing you're seeing countries around the world take different approaches, and those approaches lead to either better or worse results, right? I mean, it's, it's really easy to measure. And in, in some ways, the United States is in, a real, is in a lucky position because we can watch what's happened in Asia. We can watch what's happened in Europe. We can see how different countries – I mean, it's just – think about being a comparative politics you know, fact professor. This is, this is a really a good way to kind of see what works and was, what doesn't work. Now – the, the, the problem is we don't have a ton of time to adjust, but you see a dramatic difference between how Italy has handled this and South Korea. And you're right, Phil. South Korea has has had much, much better success than Italy has. And um, and again, we're probably a week or so behind Europe and thinking about how they handle it. So there is there is an opportunity to to confront this in a factual and scientific way that 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 isn't driven by partisan motivations. Can, can, can we talk about the shift in Trump or yeah. amongst the Trump administration? I mean, that's been really dramatic, right? So mm-hmm. I, when we talked last week, I think it was last week that he had ju- maybe, again, the last week feels like it's been yeah. like three months. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like it was a, right before we met last week when Trump had said, if everybody stays calm, this will go away, right? So I mean, yeah. that had been his rhetoric, that it's where well, there's 18 cases, we've got it locked down. Like, we don't have to worry about this. It was clear that his... Uh, his attention, he was downplaying it for unclear reasons, right? I don't know if it was that he was trying to tamp down fears about the stock market, uh, if he I, if he just didn't care, I, I don't know. But something really kind of this weekend, and, may, and maybe it was this report that came out, but, but there was a, a pretty noticeable shift early this week and that Trump has, is no longer denying the significance of this, is no longer downplaying it. Now, after the press conference on, I think it was Monday, a lot of the media started praising him for taking yeah. this seriously. And then as you, you know, as you, he was, you know, immediately again, taking shots at, at Democratic governors and tweeting about, you know, the, the unfair investigation into what he was tweeting about the, basically about, uh, was it Mike Flynn? Who, one of the, one of the, yeah, yeah he was, he's, yeah. he's going to pardon Flynn. Yeah. That was this, that right. was this week. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Life so goes it, on, man. We can't, yeah. we can't stop. <laughs> How much, I mean, there's also at the same time, very little evidence that he's, you know, there, there are reports that there is a coronavirus task force that Trump is not like participating in or visiting. Uh, does he deserve praise for the shift? What brought the shift about? Is it the stock market crash? Is it actually realizing that this is not going away? Like what, what led to this change and is it a real change or is it just a, you know, sort of a rhetorical change? I, I think he got rattled, right? I, and, and I, the reason why is kind of interesting. My guess is so. So Mike Pence, who I don't agree with ideologically, but I think we would say Mike Pence 
understands the nature of the crisis, knows he is a good public servant in terms of confronting problems. They've surrounded themselves, you know, that little gaggle of, of, of health experts that get together. They're all talking. They're talking to Pence. And I would hope that instead of getting information from loyalists, now he's suddenly getting information from people who know what they're talking about. And my guess is that that probably seeped in and he realized that this is not something you can talk your way out of. And somebody said to him, Mr. President, you're looking at millions of people dying on your watch, and that has an effect of, of forcing you to become more serious. Now, does he deserve credit? Like, just a little bit of credit, right? I mean, he went from being a, to totally denying it to being not in the way. And I, I, I guess mm-hmm. I guess that's different than leadership. I mean, ideally, what you want at this point is somebody who's able to mobilize. I mean, there's still a whole bunch of concerns about how they're confronting it. They're still not... You know, it's very piecemeal and that's going to have a lot of impact. So, yeah, I mean, he went from somebody who was denying this, saying that when it warms up, it's going to blow through to finally accepting it. But that's, you know, that's that's maybe one step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it is sort of appalling the extent to which essentially state governments and local governments had to sort of take the lead on this before the federal government started actually uh, doing anything. That's, that's really remarkable. That's not how these things typically play out. No, you you look for leadership. You look for leadership from the federal government to set the standard to say, here's what's going to go, how it's going to play out. And then the States, uh, and the local communities follow Nick, Nick, go ahead. Sorry. I interrupted. Um, no, I, I think you're, you're, you're both right. I I think the stock market was a, a big wake up call. Um, at the same time, I think that there is a, a significant, uh, you know, political bent to this in the sense of, I know when the federal government wasn't doing anything initially, and I heard that they were putting, you know, almost a trillion dollars into the economy, I started going, you really can pay for all this shit, can you? We're talking about student loans, healthcare, the things that all of the Democratic challengers have been talking about. You have the will and the ability to do it. So, I think it it changes the political calculus um, during an election season. And and it's, you know, cynical to say something like that. But if he doesn't do anything now, there are severe um, political repercussions, not only for him, but for the Republicans in general. That's one of the more, I think, the more fascinating angles to all this is how is this going to play out politically? I mean, in general, if you are a president and the economy tanks, you're done, right? I mean, you, you know, George H.W. Bush, who uh, won a war in Iraq, and then a few months later, the economy tanks and he doesn't win reelection, right? And Bill Clinton's able to run on it. See, the economy's stupid. And, and so, Trump is potentially facing an economy. I mean, he's the stock market has already lost, I think, all of the gains that they've made during his presidency. Mm-hmm. 20% unemployment. I mean, this is this should kill a presidency. But today he started shifting the rhetoric to say he is a wartime president, right? That this is this is war, baby, and it's an invisible enemy, and he's gonna <laughs> fight it like crazy. And so it made me wonder whether like the wartime argument, so you've got the economy argument confronting a wartime argument and and i don't know what that's going to mean for the political prospects of the president but it, it certainly is, is going to be interesting it is an interesting argument because kelly and i were talking about this about how what impact does this have on the election and, and in you know in political science you have the one of the like you said one of the you know classic things is that if the economy is with the economy with the economy falling apart trump should be done right he was already not a particularly popular president the economy was the thing he had going for him um, but yeah, this rally around the flag effect, right, which in wartime, people tend to fall in line behind their president. And I, do, I don't have a sense of how people will view that. Now, 
there's also an argument that even if he's a wartime president, he is really bungling the war, right? <laughs> right, so, right? So if you go to war, but you immediately lead your troops into slaughter, I don't know that the rally around the flag effect is as effective. Uh, but yeah, it'll, it, it'll be interesting to see. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think there could be a the ability to blunt some of this if they do put some of these programs into place that some of the Democrats have been championing. You start handing money out to Americans. If you pour a trillion dollars into the bond market, um, you know, and, and it, it does um, help to to alleviate some of the suffering that people are going through. Uh, and the economy doesn't or, or does uh, potentially rebound, maybe not to where it was, but at least in the short term, uh, doesn't completely uh, crash. Um, you know, again, in the end, it's 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 the economy, stupid. If it's if it's not crazy and it looks like there is some effort to uh, to fix this. Um, I, I don't know. I think those political um, alignments will will very quickly reemerge. Especially. There, there's an there's an interesting argument that the Democrats didn't play their cards particularly well in this case either, because the 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 policies, the plans that they put out are sort of medium aggressive right. um, because I think they were thinking they're dealing with the Republicans. But what it did is it left room for we'll, we'll talk here in a few minutes about it. But suddenly the people leading the conversation about sending checks to average Americans are Mitt Romney and and uh, <laughs> is it Tom Cotton out of Arkansas? Like, yeah, Tom Cotton. Yeah. And, and then now, you know, Manu, uh, this, uh, the the the. Uh, the Treasury Secretary and the President are talking about getting hand, money in the hands of. So the the Democrats should have been able to. I mean, this should have been a slam dunk for them, and they left room for Republicans to claim some of the the success for um, you know now. The party, the Republican Party as a whole, doesn't line as a caucus doesn't line. It's, you have sort of a handful of Republicans who are mm -hmm. leading that, but uh, yeah. Yeah, if you if you talk about, I mean, I, so there's the the conversation about giving uh, Americans a thousand dollars, but I, there's some conversation about like a thousand dollars a month, right? Um, if this is an extended, and again, we'll get to the universal basic income later in, in speed round, but that's if if Trump wants to get reelected, that's how he avoids losing, right? I oh, mean, just God, by. Yeah. You know, break the bank. Debt doesn't matter anymore. And I think we've seen from this administration, this is not a traditional conservative administration that what? worries about deficits, right? They uh -huh. don't. I mean, think about it. it wasn't that long ago when, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis, Republicans were very wary about this massive stimulus plan that the Democrats were pushing. That, that era of Republican is gone. Now we're just spending. Who cares? You know, the, the Generation Z or whatever will deal with it. I mean, it's a it's a different and different in political environment. There was a Democratic president then. There's a Republican president. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, and I think that you're I think to, to Phil's point, I think that's what caught Democrats off guard a little bit. They didn't think yep. that Republicans would lead the charge just say yeah let's just start handing out money um and and politically that really works mm -hmm. except for ron paul he he wants to to change the deal to begin with or, or wasn't going to vote for it he's only mad because his neighbor might get a thousand dollars and he's still pissed <laughs> off at that guy <laughs> so. i'd be kind of pissed off at that guy too to be perfectly honest but. so just you know i know we eventually we got to wrap up here but i the other thing i was thinking about today as we think about the trump administration and his response to this is it feels like it in some ways it was inevitable that we would get here when elements of a political party start to reject science and i know not all of the republican party did that but aspects did. And then Trump came along and this sort of post-truth world. And that's where our political system drifted. And then when faced with a real crisis, you know, something that you can't just, you know, manipulate facts about it, it's really going to hit us. And so I'm, I'm curious how 
the American public response to this when, you know, an, a, an administration that has a loose relationship with the truth, a loose relationship with the science tries to deal with the crisis? And do they say, you know, to this idea of, of bipartisanship, enough of this, like we want our politicians to be grounded in reality, grounded in facts and science. Um, I, I wonder whether that will cause us to drift back and not necessarily towards Democrats, but the idea that we want more from our politicians. No, well, that's it, no fun. <laughs> it's not just the the rejection of science it's sort of the rejection of expertise and it's also the rejection of government right i mean the the right. last 50 years of the republican party have been built around this idea that republican that that government is inefficient and bad right in the private sector and and this is a situation that calls for government intervention um and so yeah i mean it, it's it requires this really kind of interesting shift and, and and it would be great in my mind if it would change that conversation from a blanket government is bad to you know i don't have a problem with people saying government is is better suited for certain things and let's have that conversation but it's been the 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 drift of the republican party has been you know all of government bad Right, right. And, and we may find that, I mean, the, the, the reality is that the only way we are going to uh, successfully confront this is with some government control. I mean, you know, the idea that uh, in Illinois, the governor came out, I don't know, four or five days ago and said that, you know, he didn't want people going to bars and restaurants. Like, let's cut back. Let's show some restraint. And people don't show restraint. Um, you know, this is spring break down in Florida. And I'm, there's videos all over social media of knuckleheaded 21 year olds uh, saying that, oh, I'm not worried about this, right? So human beings- drink some salt water, it's fine. <laughs> right, exactly, right, and gargle some bleach. Uh, you know, I think uh, Americans, human beings in general, don't always do the right thing. And that's the moment when you think about right. a role for government. Government is coming in saying, you need to do better and we're gonna help you be better. And, and this is where you see differences within the parties as well. So I look at governors, uh, the Republican Party, right? You've got the South Carolina governor who was playing it down and saying this is no big deal. You've got the Ohio governor, right? Both of which are Republicans. The Ohio yeah. governor has been maybe the most aggressive in his approach to all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's uh, these are again, these are great. These are important conversations. It would have been great if we had them, uh, you know, in several years ago. But um, it, it's, <laughs> I suppose it's good that we're having them now. Well, and there there will be a, a reckoning, right? And I and so the governor of Ohio may be in a really strong position to say, like, when push came to shove, I I confronted this problem in a factual, non bipartisan way, and I don't know if Trump's going to be able to do that, right? I mean, he shifted a little bit, but even today he was back, you know, attacking Democrats. When you see him on Twitter, I, I think it's going to be a struggle for him to get away from this partisan attack because that's that's all he really is at the end of the day. This is his bread and butter. And that kind of approach to governance is not going to work when you're confronting something like coronavirus. He's yeah, a well. showman. And you, yeah. you want a president who's not a showman. You want a president who's a, who's a you know, whatever, a technician at this point, right? You want somebody who's boring, but, but organized. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is the thing in American politics where we want to elect someone who we can have a beer with. And that kind of plays out on both parties. And again, we should want to elect somebody who's really good at the job, not someone who is, you know, likable or, or whatever. I think right. you, you guys are, are giving people way too much credit. I, I think <laughs> at the end of all this, yes, this will probably be a, a defining moment for a generation, but not for any particular um, widespread uh, political reasons in terms of uh, just the general population. I think just based on what we've seen through social media, through the mainstream media, um, through the talking points that are coming out, uh, both from the administration, from governors, from local government, um, 
this is still a political football and this is something that they're going to take advantage of as soon as the worst of this has has passed um i i i don't think this is going to be a moment where you know we decide that there's a better way to do things that we can move past our bi- uh, bipartisan bullshit I, I think this is this is this is just another day, to be perfectly honest. And we should say that, I, I, at least I don't think we've hit the worst of it, right? We are really at the beginning. I mean, we haven't seen death tolls skyrocket yet. It's, it's going to get worse. It's going to get bad. Yeah. And then how will the how will the American public, how will the, the politicians, the political system handle this? Like, there's, there's a lot to come. I mean, Mnuchin was talking about 20% unemployment. In some ways, when that when I first heard that number, I was stunned, right? That's a stunning number, but it could be much, much higher, right? If we're talking about shutting everything down, at least for a short period of time, 20% may be an underestimation. It could be much, much higher. No, right. And then a completely destroyed economy after that, after everything right. is done. Right. And, and while while there are lines to buy toilet paper, there are also lines to buy guns this week. Right. <laughs> how sure. how America reacts to this is still yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If right. you get a gun, you can just take the toilet. That's true. That's so, true. Let's be That's efficient right. about it. Oh, that got depressing real quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, should we, should we talk? Let's talk beers and then we'll come back to coronavirus. So. All right. So, Phil, what, what are you having? So I'm having a, I, I decided on a really crappy week, I needed a really good beer. And so um, I, uh, uh, I had gone down to Brewtopia and Keen last week and stocked up before everything shut down. And, and uh, he set me up with a um, treehouse, Julius, which y'all had a couple of weeks ago I've had before. Oh. So I, I don't I don't you know need to go into a lot. It's the it's the number nineteen beer on Beer Advocate in the world. It, it's just really fantastic. I mean, it's citrusy. It's it's like light. It's juicy. Everything is about it is great. Mm-hmm. Of of all the treehouse beers we've had, and we I think we've tried five or six or maybe more than that, right? That one was like spectacular because it, really, it yeah, was, was you know good. it's juicy and it's it, all the IPA stuff, but it's also different, right? It's not your typical IPA. They do just enough. They tweak it enough to make you it's it's memorable. So it's like light and re- it's like a refreshing almost. It's like a yeah. I, I don't I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, it's it's it's, it's really excellent. Yeah. So normally Nick and I tape together, but because of the coronavirus and because I got a new microphone, I'm actually taping in my basement. So, uh, so Nick, Nick, what do you, I I miss you. What what are you enjoying? Oh, I miss you too, Bill. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no, I, I didn't have a chance to go to the liquor store because I was, uh, at the grocery store clotheslining old ladies and taking their toilet paper. Um, no, I had a, an extra, uh, kill all the golfers, uh, mead and the, uh, in the old beer fridge. So, I'm uh, I'm down I'm down in that by myself. It's it's a hefty bottle and it's delicious. I like uh, that name. Kill all oh. the golfers. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 good. It's got it's got the little um the little uh, why can't it the the gopher on it and yeah. in a golf cart. It's from it's Caddyshack. Hilarious. Oh, from Caddyshack. it is that that was uh, you know I hadn't had a mead in a long time and when you and I sampled that it was just out of this world. So yeah, it tastes like uh, like an Arnold Palmer. So check that out. Yeah. Um, if you guys want to find the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, Nick, I didn't get them. to review my beer. I'm sorry. I'm so <laughs> focused on, on me. <laughs> so without you here, it's hard to keep track. I know this is this all very new. So well, actually, I, I because. St. Patrick's Day was ruined yesterday. I felt the need to have a Guinness. So I started with a Guinness, but then that went down really, really quickly. Um, <laughs> so now I move on to my second beer, which is actually a beer out of Evanston, Illinois, uh, called the Orange Door. And the reason I picked it up is because it is a double dry hopped IPA. And Phil mm, keeps going on and on great. about these double dry hopped IPAs. And I will say, uh, this is a sketchbook brewing. 
it's fantastic, right? It is, uh, you know, the double IPAs for a long time were just hit you over the head and the dry hop is not. Uh, it is light, it's citrusy. Um, as it warms up a little bit, it's getting better. So uh, yeah, so I've we've never had this beer, uh, this brewery sketchbook, sketchbook. So uh, solid beer, check it out. Mm-hmm. Are, are you done now? Can I no, move no, on? I'm done, Nick. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, anyways, if you guys, uh, again, want to check out the beers we have on the podcast, you can find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, just search for Barstool Politics on there and you'll find all of our reviews. Let's jump to speed round. So yeah, we're going to start. Yeah, we're going to start with some election stuff and then we'll come back to coronavirus. So, all right. So uh, we're going to take a momentary break from the coronavirus to look at the Democratic primary, specifically at Sunday's Democratic debate, where Joe Biden, the likely nominee, announced that he would be choosing a woman to be his running mate. In response to a question, Biden stated, quote, I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a woman to be vice president, unquote. No major candidate has ever made a pledge based on demographic characteristics, nor has one narrowed the field of potential vice presidential nominees this this early in the year, several months before the decision is usually made. The announcement was celebrated by some and scorned by others. It has led to a lot of speculation of who Biden might be thinking of. Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, and others, Elizabeth Warren are top names. Uh, but the Michigan government governor, uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms, and Nevada Senator Catherine uh, Cortez Masto are also in the mix. Uh, Phil, Biden is taking a somewhat unorthodox approach by announcing his attentions this early. Uh, what were your reactions to this development? Um, I, I mean, this makes some sense to me, right? So what Biden, Biden basically has this thing locked up, right? Uh, there, Bernie's still holding on. He's he's uh, today. He talked about. I mean, it sounds like he's hoping to have a big win in New York, but uh, you know, the nationwide poll, Biden's now got a significant lead in delegates in in national polling. He's up like forty points over Bernie. This is going to be Biden's thing. It's going to be his nomination. But what Biden needs to do at this point is to maintain his base, his core group of Democratic voters. But he needs to reach out to to Bernie Sanders voters um, and try to bring some of them in. And he's done some of that by this week. He endorsed uh, Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy plan, I think, yeah, and right. Bernie Sanders uh basically free college plan, right? It was for, it was for state college for like public schools. Um, I don't remember the exact details. This seems to fall in line with that, right? I mean, the idea of I'm going to choose a, a, a woman, you know, he's, he is an old white man. So the idea that I'm going to choose, uh, you know, not <laughs> a not white me. man <laughs> as his, his running mate seems like a, a way to sort of try to solidify the, the base or people who weren't necessarily excited about, about Joe Biden. Um, I, it also makes me think that he probably already has somebody in mind, right? I, I, it would be really bold to go out there and say, I'm going to pick a woman. And then I, I don't know, without, without having, I, I say that there's a lot of women that he could, that he could talk to if, if his first choice isn't, um, isn't, isn't available, but I don't know. It makes, it does make me think there's that he has someone, uh, in, in mind. Mm-hmm. Nick, what are you thinking about all this? Um, I, I mean, first of all, to, to telegraph something like that, so blatantly um didn't really sit well with me i feel like you could have chosen a running mate and you know just had it be what it was um i think people were under the assumption that it would probably be a woman anyways just based on the political climate um which you know completely understandable um i think him endorsing the plans from from warren and 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 several other uh, more progressive candidates suggests to me that it won't be any of those particular uh women um Kamala Harris, uh, I think she's exceptionally divisive, uh, and she wouldn't necessarily make the best candidate uh, again with uh, in this political climate. 
Um, so for that reason, uh, and for uh, the other reasons that I listed, I'm firmly convinced that his running mate will be Hillary Clinton with his. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's not defensive at all. No, no, not at all. And then you he'll know. step down or, you know, go into a nursing home and uh, then she'll become president and everybody on the left will be OK with that. He's He's got some really good options when I think about this. And yeah. and Kamala Harris, I guess it depends on the reason I think he might wait is to see where the electorate is. If if it feels like he can't win the Midwest alone, then Klobuchar is the pick, right? I mean, so she would do really well. Obviously, she'd win Minnesota, but she has appeal in Wisconsin. She has appeal across the Midwest. Tammy Baldwin, the senator from Wisconsin, is another potential option as well. If, if it looks like it's going to come down to Wisconsin and he's struggling in Wisconsin, you just do that. And that's, you know, you win Wisconsin and you win the election if he feels like i mean joe biden has a good appeal in the midwest so if he's feeling comfortable there then i think kamala harris might be an option because she would you know excite a lot of the young people the base right i mean that i mean not the base but the younger base the more bernie base They're, they keep throwing her on elizabeth what's that the dumb ones. The dumb, they keep throwing her on Elizabeth Warren, but I can't see him doing no, that no just way. just because of age factors, right? I mean, I, I, and, I, I, there's a lot I like about Elizabeth Warren, but you're thinking about uh, Biden's there for four years. You want somebody young. You want somebody exciting who would be a, a you know a potential nominee, and uh, that's not Warren right now. She doesn't bring anything to. I mean, I guess she brings a more progressive. Uh, uh, approach but another sort of northeastern uh, he doesn't need help in massachusetts and she's from a state that has a republican governor and the, and the democrats have to take they don't have to but they really need to take the senate right now um and so taking her out of the senate and allowing another republican uh, that that doesn't make sense um either yeah it's hard for me to see that elizabeth warren ends up playing that role mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, and, but the reality, I mean, there, there's some really exciting options here. I mean, it's there. there's the handful of, of, of women that are running for president, but that's just scratching the surface. I mean, if things play out where he feels comfortable, he doesn't need to make an appointment based on region. There, there are a lot of really exciting governors and senators who aren't in the limelight who might be fantastic picks. Um, Stacey Abrams, you know, the uh, from from Georgia who ran for governor is another one young. I mean, I just feel like this is I, I know there was some criticism of him for doing this, but it, it strikes me as this is the right thing to do, um, you know, push the party in the right direction, reflect the Democratic Party as a whole. Um, and yeah, and drive the process. This 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 can an old white guy can suddenly reinvent himself with a with a good VP pick. What was the criticism? I, I'm not I, so I don't I'm, I'm not fully I, I guess I don't fully understand the critique. The, the critique was that he was doing this just for votes, right? The idea is that you've got to diversify and it's not it's not the best person. It's it's a category, right? So the idea of instead of picking who you think would be the best vice president, you're being strategic, which, again, I understand the criticism. But do have people looked at history? This is why what all vice presidents are right. about. It's for different <laughs> reasons. Usually it's right. it's for votes. But um, and I think this is this still could potentially be for votes. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't think the, the critique was fair always. Always. He's he's a politician trying to win the presidency. Everything he's doing is for votes <laughs> right, in some right. way. And and again, there's nothing new about the 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 sort of meltdown that or the the critique that he sort of pledged this is also not new, right? Ronald Reagan pledged that he would nominate a woman to the Supreme Court, right? I mean, these are these sorts of things have happened in the past. Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I suppose, right? Like you can make the argument that you should pick whoever's best or whatever. But uh, yeah. Um, it does. It doesn't seem all that different from the way politics has been played for a long time. In some ways, it seems savvy of him, in my mind, to get out. Like 
the idea that he pledged to nominate to 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 choose a woman before Bernie Sanders, the supposedly more progressive candidate, could is that, that seems smart to me, right? If you're mm-hmm. playing the political game. Right. And, and I think that that's an important. Yes, absolutely. And, and when Bernie was asked the question, he, he said he likely would, but he didn't say I would. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so that's that's the divide there where, um, yeah, I, I was surprised. And I, again, well, maybe we can talk about Bernie in a little bit, but Biden is definitely drifting in the in the more progressive direction. He is still a centrist, but uh, uh, Bernie is having an impact. So right, we should, I, oh, go ahead. Hold on. Yeah. One, yeah. one quick point. Uh, uh, just uh, off of a point that you brought up, Bill. Um Going back to our, our original topic, how does I, I, I agree that in an ideal or a normal circumstance, he could easily pick someone from the Midwest or someone who has a little bit more uh, centrist appeal um, rather than some of the, the Democratic challengers who have already been dispatched. How does the landscape after this crisis change that? Because realistically, you have a shortened amount of time for people to learn enough about the candidate yeah. to make them a viable option, as opposed to someone who already has name recognition, who somebody, you know, people can already attach themselves to. That's a really good, that's a really good point, Nick, because we're not going to have campaign after campaign after campaign event anymore to get to know people. I, um, I wonder about that. I, I, I hope that all sides are thinking about that. Um, yeah, the the sales pitch of how you present the VP and and I I don't know I that's a it's a great point I haven't thought fully about it. Great, well, thanks. I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's 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 look at uh, elections. So speaking of elections, three straight three states voted yesterday, including Nick and my home state of Illinois. Yet the coronavirus outbreak looks like it will also upend the presidential campaign. As of this moment, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, and Ohio have postponed or moved to postpone their presidential primary elections. In Ohio, officials declared a public health emergency just hours before the polls were set to open on Tuesday. In case anyone is curious, Biden cleaned up. Uh, as it stands, the, none of the presidential candidates have any scheduled events in public. Sunday night's debate was held with, uh, without an on-site audience to avoid public the public possible spread of the virus, which, if I'm honest, I thought made for a really good format. Absolutely. Uh, good <laughs> yeah, I yeah, never really like that. Yes. Yeah, audience, the audience doesn't help at all. Um, so given the many that many are suggesting the coronavirus could extend until July or August, it's not it's no longer far fetched to ask whether it could impact the 2020 presidential election as well. Phil, I voted yesterday, but it was a rather surreal scene that involved all sorts of hand, hand sanitizer at multiple different stages. What's your read on whether we should be voting during a global pandemic? I thought they didn't have any hand sanitizer. Oh, mine. They had lots of it. I got it when I came in. I got it after I signed the thing. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, Yeah, covered. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm I'm really torn on this, and I've kind of struggled with this all week. I I think these are exceptional circumstances, and, and having hundreds of thousands of people go to polls seems like an awful idea when you're trying to prevent the spread of a disease that it goes against everything that the CDC and all these other people are, you know, all of the, the institutions are, are um, supporting. And this is different than a general election and that this is a, a way that a party chooses a nominee. And so how a party chooses its nominee, I, I'm willing to allow there to be more flexibility. The flip side of that is that 
I worry about the precedent it sets. And, and, and you know, Trump has joked about staying in office longer or people have, you know, I, I, I so whether it's Trump or, or anyone else, I, I the idea that um, any president for some sort of bad circumstance could say this is really dire and we're going to delay an election um, is really concerning. Right. And we're talking about, in, you know, that I love institutions and norms. And so so that that really worries me. So the idea that that governors are sort of saying we're just going to because things are bad, we're going to boot, you know, punt this down the road a couple of months. Um, I worry about what lesson or what, you know, how that shifts thinking about the way elections are are carried out. So I, I, I'm really torn on it. In the end, I think the takeaway is the lesson learned is that we have, what, seven, eight months till our national election, and we should start making plans right now. Because there are people who are talking about how this may still be around. This may be around for 18 months, right? So maybe it goes away in the summer. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it comes back in the fall. But there's a real possibility. I don't know how big of a possibility that this is still the situation in November. And there's no reason why we can't right now start working towards some sort of massive vote by mail process. You know, states should be working on that right now. What are we going to do in November if this if there is still a pandemic? Um, If we get to November and states are still unprepared to carry this out or the only option is to risk your health to go out and vote, that's that's shameful. Like that shouldn't happen. Nick, Nick, what's your read? Um, this is one of those rare situations where I think the federal government needs to take a heavy handed approach to um, these processes and, and procedures. Uh, like I said at the, at the beginning of the podcast, I think the fact that some governors went through uh, with the primaries and the way that they they spoke about it uh, was reprehensible and they should be held accountable for that, for potentially spreading a disease that we know next to nothing about and that we're under, you know, in essence, a national quarantine over. Um, I, I think that there should have been a an immediate response from the federal government saying every primary is now getting uh, postponed for at least the next month. Uh, we're making preparations to to move forward and, and potentially, you know, alter the way that the election is held. I, like if if we're going to talk about a national election where everybody needs to have the same uh, accountability and same access, um, you cannot allow individual states to do this. And, and, and in 99 percent of uh, uh, other situations, I would say, yes, defer to the states on this. But this is an unprecedented these are unprecedented circumstances and something more more comprehensive needs to be done. I, so I, you are, I, I mean, this is where the constitutionally though, right? The, the states are given the power to carry out their elections. I, I agree with you that this is, a, you know, it illustrates why the idea of 50 different states having 50 different policies and 50 different systems for coming up with how to elect people is I, I know that like we love our federalism in, in America and we love that we each get to do it our own way, but it's it seems crazy to me that that is the case. Why not have some sort of actual national plan for how we're going to elect national leaders? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think there are the, the the potential constitutional wrinkles to this are really really fascinating. It would be fun to talk to Tom about that, right? If 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 the federal government did say this is the way it's going to play out. The other thing I think is really interesting is that 
it's likely to lead to more creative ways to vote, right? So thinking not just vote by mail, vote by mail, but you know, can you you register electronically, voting electronically? I mean, we're gonna we're gonna we have to start thinking outside of the box, and and how we vote, drive up vote, all of these things. Which you know, to go back to a point we made earlier in the podcast, those could be good things, right? The idea that we make voting easier. I've always thought it was a good thing. The more people that are allowed to vote in an easy way is good for the political system. But that being said, this is also incredibly political, right? Who gets to vote and, and gets access to all of that is deeply political because it means you know it impacts the election. So while it seems like it could be an easy thing to say, let's find new and creative ways to let everybody vote, there may not always be as much support as we think for that. But I, I think this is where the coronavirus provides an interesting – so we, t- we talked about it and we're going to talk about it here in just a second the, – the sort of economic response and how Republican and Democratic interests seem to line up suddenly. It's the same thing with voting. Where So the Republican Party typically doesn't benefit from wider access to voting. But in these particular circumstances, mm-hmm. they do because the people who are most at risk and the people who are going to be most afraid of going out to polls – are are you know the seniors right who are the the sort of core voting block of the Republican party and so there is at this moment this 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 uh you know in this intersection of democratic interests to expand the vote and republican interests to make sure that their base also get, can get out and vote and hopefully that will mean that they can come together and actually come up with a plan that 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 does that that actually exp- makes it easier for people to to participate come november that's that's really interesting, you know, and I think it made me think of yesterday and, you know, when in Florida where people thought that, you know, the fact that uh, coronavirus was, was everywhere would decrease the number of elderly that voted. But the, the reality is what it was like the old people still continued to vote and young people were scared. But I think you're right. This could create an incentive. And, and that's a good thing, right? If 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 we can come together to say, let's create a, a fair set of rules where everybody can vote, everybody wins for that. Yep. That's why I think it's what? Like a two percent chance that that'll happen. I'm giving it two. <laughs> Optimistic, Nick. Slightly above right. the mortality rate. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's jump. Uh, let's go back to the pandemic. So as the pandemic panic mounts worldwide, and more people are people globally are being told to stay home, one conservative American politician is taking a decidedly progressive position, proposing interim universal basic income (UBI). Senator Mitt Romney, a big fan of the show of Utah, on Tuesday said that every American <laughs> should get a thousand dollar check to cover costs and keep the economy running. In addition to a slew of other measures that to mitigate the pandemic's fiscal fallout, uh, while Romney didn't call his plan UBI, the, this idea now floated in the context of a possible global academic recession is one that former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang made the basis of his recently ceased campaign. Romney has been joined by Senator Tom Cotton and, and Tulsi Gabbard and others. Phil, this is a really curious development. What's, what's with these conservative free marketeers suddenly turning all socialists? I, it's a, I don't It's a good question. I was a little surprised when I saw, you know, I, Mitt Romney surprised me a little bit. Tom Cotton surprised me a lot. I mean, I, again, I think you have the the intersection, you know, sort of like we were just talking about of, of Democratic interests, which are helping out sort of the average everyday working person and the Republican interests, which is, you know, we want to help out businesses like restaurants and small businesses are going to get hammered by this. Right. Like, you know, I, I went and got my hair cut today and I think. For right now, people are showing up, but when things get shut down or that, that like people, those small businesses are going to get killed. 
And so I, I think you have this intersection of, of, of the recognition that, you know, Democrats who want to help out people because they think there should be some universal basic income, Republicans who are worried about the larger economic picture. Um, and, and I don't want to, I, I don't, I don't want it to come across that. I, I think Romney actually cares. I mean, he's worried about average people as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's interesting and it, and it appears to be, I mean, President Trump at his briefing, was it yesterday or day before? Uh, Mnuchin, 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 why can't I ever remember Mnuchin. Mnuchin? All right, so I should know this <laughs> Treasury Secretary how to pronounce his name. But Mnuchin uh, said, we're going to get money in the hands of average Americans and we're going to do it soon. He was talking about doing it in the next two weeks. So I, I, it seems like this is going to happen. The, the the number of Republicans who are on board with it is a little surprising to me. I, I mean, I suppose we did something similar under Bush, right? Didn't he send out checks to Americans yeah. at one point? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, it, it's, I, don't, I don't really know what to make of it. But if I go back to the changes to society and what happens in, in how society changes, um, you know, I think about the Great Depression and, and how all of these measures were put in place to help bring the country out of the Great Depression. And not all of them stuck, but some of them did, right? We end up with Social Security and some of these other measures. And I am still like highly doubtful that this would be a long term thing. But you never know, right? You put this in place and you realize that it, in fact, helps. And it, like, who knows? Who knows what this, where this goes long term? Nick, big fan of UBI? Uh, <laughs> here's why it's not going to happen. So I, realistically, I think for the short term, for a couple of months, sure, you could probably do that. But if you're talking about doing $1,000 per person every month, we're talking about somewhere between... 150 and 300 billion dollars a month like how it's it's not it's not physically possible it one it's either you're going to do this and put it in place and you're going to have uh the biggest uh social safety net in u.s history that you're not going to be able to get rid of or you're going to try and piecemeal this and go we need to put regulations in place it's for hourly workers it's for people who have been significantly adversely affected by that. And then it turns into an argument about how do you dictate what person does get it and what doesn't. And that's a drawn out process. There's no good scenario where you can put this in place effectively. You're either completely fiscally irresponsible or you're not helping everybody. Like I, I don't, I don't see this as, as a win. You, you mean long-term long-term. That's yeah. What yeah. I mean. No, mm-hmm. uh, you're right that it requires uh, requires hard conversations. But I, but I feel like maybe this is the time to begin that. I, I, I'm a big believer. Like I don't think we need UBI right now, but I think ten years from now we might. Right? There's the the way in which income is being separated and, and the haves and the have nots are getting divided up. Um, there, the reality is that there is a large segment of the American public that really does need a thousand dollars a month. There are others who do not, right? And I would say, like, I fall into that category. I, I, I don't need a thousand dollar check from the government every month. I need it. Every... I, need <laughs> it. <laughs> I could use it. I spent a thousand dollars on groceries. I don't know what you're talking. I about. would like it, but I don't really need it, right? So I mean, so at some point, you know, the government begins to have these hard conversations to say, "This group, we absolutely need to do this because, you know, because that's the way things are going to play out, right? And, and the economy could implode if we don't do this, or not the economy, the political system could implode, right? Your, your, the idea is that there are certain segments that you need to find. Uh, a mechanism to keep them on board. So I, I wonder whether this is the be- again the beginning of a much harder conversation. So, I, I, so I'm I'm not an economist by any means. So I don't I, you know the the implications of all of this. I, I um, 
I don't, I don't see how I, any, anyway, I, I do think about how the, I, this is likely, I, I suspect this is going to happen. Um, and, and I think about the large term economic, it's going to happen short term, right? So at some point there, there's either going to be a one-time check cut to Americans, or there's going to be some sort of monthly check until the coronavirus thing. There's no guarantee of that, but it certainly seems that's the way politics is going. But I think about the larger economic picture, the larger political economic picture, you know, in our lives. So, you know, Bill, you and I were in grad school when September 11th happened and, and you have this financial collapse and, and, and sort of recovery from that. Uh, and then in 2008, you have this financial collapse and recovery. And, and since then, since 2008, the, re- the economy, the economy has recovered, but it's been in stock market growth. It hasn't been in wage growth. Right. So it's been like largely at the top. The average sort of worker hasn't seen a whole lot of benefits. And now you have this. So, you know, people who have lived, you know, people who are. 30 years old, 40 years old, their entire adult life has been essentially this economic crunch after economic crunch after economic crunch. Hi, how with, are you? Yeah, right, 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 exactly. And with, um, and I think that is going to, to change or lead to some conversations about sort of long-term solutions and how we, how we address them. And, and I think you're right. I, I don't know that that means that it's going to be a UBI, you know, but I, but I do think there will be some big structural changes about how we move forward because again, a huge chunk of the voting population has, has sort of gone through this over and over crash and, and regrowth without necessarily benefiting in any of the regrowth periods, right? They just get right. hammered over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. My dog thinks you're spot on, Phil. I know. He's, he, yeah, he's one of the ones that's been hurt over and over by these financial collapses. You, <clears throat> I kind of briefly talked about it uh, earlier on, but you wonder what this is going to do for uh, millennials, Gen Z, how this is going to change their uh, economic viewpoint. Because, again, for, for me, you, you hear about these programs and the fact that I, I'm one to think that it's it's fiscally irresponsible <clears throat> to put these type of uh, types of programs in place um, without a way to pay for them. But it seems like you have when the government says they have the ability to do this and then they just decide to do it. I think that changes a lot of people's calculus. <clears throat> Sorry, it's Corona. Um, uh, and, and what that means going forward, does this allude to more of a, a, a progressive bent uh, in younger generations? Does this mean that we'll see a push towards a, a more fervent push towards these type of programs uh, and a way to actually fund them and, and defund other things that are important right now, thanks to the boomers? Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, 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 it's an interesting uh, inflection point, and I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen in the near future. We've talked you know, about foreign policy with these paradigm-shifting moments where suddenly the, the public is one direction, it moves to another, and it feels like this could be one of those moments where we rethink a lot of those issues. And it, to be honest, it would be nice to, to have something like that where we, we think more, I don't know, long-term about the benefits of all generations, not just you know, those in the boomer generation. So that's why we got the boomer remover. That's right. right. That's right. It's a Gen Z conspiracy. Right. All right. (laughs) Finishing up today. So let's, let's jump to Fox news. So we've seen an interesting shift in the coverage of the coronavirus from Fox news for weeks. Some of Fox news, most popular hosts downplayed the threat of the coronavirus, characterizing it as a conspiracy by media organizations and Democrats to undermine president Trump. 
Fox News personalities such as Sean Hannity and Lauren Ingram accused the news media of whipping up mass hysteria and being panic pushers. Fox business host Trish Regan called the alleged uh, media Democratic Alliance, quote, yet another attempt to impeach the president. Yet those comments uh, by Trish caused her to lose uh, her show to be put on, quote, hiatus by Fox. And we've seen a similar shift across across Fox. Sean Hannity is now calling the coronavirus a crisis and noted, quote, we are witnessing uh, what will be a mass paradigm shift in the future of disease control and prevention. Um, now, in some ways, this is not surprising. Uh, as time went by, it was no longer possible to deny the danger. Yet I also think the symbiotic relationship between Trump and Fox is really, really fascinating here. It's a chicken and egg situation. Phil, what do you make of this? Or might it simply be that the coronavirus has caused a shift, the public to shift, and you know, Fox News is part of that, into a more bipartisan direction? That's the optimistic way to think about it, that we're <laughs> okay. all being more bipartisan, but I, I'm yeah. skeptical that that's actually where we are. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe it could get us there, but I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, this is this the shift is really fascinating. Um, Fox was in full, not all of them, but a lot of the Fox News you know, coverage was in full on... Well, full denial mode, right? I mean, yeah. even, even it's not even just Fox, it's conservative media in general, Rush Limbaugh and all sorts of other people who are, you know, this is a hoax. This is not a, this is not a, an, an actual thing. It's, it's less, you know, significant than the flu. And then it felt like sort of instantly that, that shift occurred and suddenly they're talking about, um, the, talking about it in a serious way. Now, Fox viewers are like their demographics, like their viewers are like at the highest risk. So, I mean, I, you know, there, at some point there, I mean, there was, I think you could argue that there was uh, a tremendous amount of sort of, I don't know, moral culpability already with what they had done sort of leading up to that point. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's that I, I haven't looked at the timeline specifically enough to know, was it the shift in the president's tone that led to a shift? It seems like the president shifted and then Fox fell in line, which is the different from the story, which had been told, which is that Trump is getting his, you know, his, his, uh, um, his, uh, whatever his approach, his, his, uh, stance from Fox news. Um, I mean, for a long time, obviously, the Trump the president influences Fox, right? Because their stance on all sorts of issues has shifted since Trump became president. Um, you know, suddenly there are, there are opinions on a variety of issues. Trump's not a classic conservative, and they kind of fell in line behind him. But yeah, it, it is this sort of mutually reinforcing thing. And I don't know what the what the issue was that tipped it in this particular case. Because it was really dramatic. I mean, they were yeah. hammering the the whole coverage and the Democrats and all of that. And then it, it dramatically shifted where it, it felt like it came from top down. In like, a matter well, of days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh, my God. I can't get rid of this thing. It's the, the coronavirus is tough can to I, shake. Can you yeah. get coronavirus through a microphone? <laughs> I don't have a doctor's note, so I, I can't go in. <clears throat> Bill, go ahead. I got to figure this out. All right. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a it's kind of pick up a, a piggyback on your point, Phil. I, I don't know what the driving factor was. I, I do wonder, I think to your first point about the demographic of Fox, I wonder whether it didn't start with the upper levels of Fox, where they started to say, like, this is a, this is a real deal threat. And I think the executives at Fox are more likely to be grounded in reality than the president is. Uh, I think they understand viewership. They understand. I mean, they're, they're, they're business people who are, are savvy. I'm not, again, I'm not always convinced that the president is grounded in reality. So I wonder whether Fox helped shift the president's mentality on this. I certainly think the, 
you know, the, 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 the brain trust around him is, is, is also the medical people are also shaping that. But I think there's a, a big role to play for Fox. And, you know, 25 years from now, when we step back and think about the role of Fox News in shaping this presidency, I think this is going to be one example of many where we see that what's really going on here is that Fox is having just a dramatic impact on, on the president. And if, if they got him to move in a, a more productive direction, good for Fox. So you think the Fox, the shift in Fox in the rhetoric on Fox is part of what pushed Trump to to shift so dramatically? I, I think so. And again, you know, I will say this, not having studied any, there's all sorts of good stuff that looks at the way in which Fox and, and the president go back and forth. And I haven't seen anything specifically on this, but I, I do wonder whether it may have been Fox that initiated it. Um, again, this is all speculation, but uh, it just strikes me that of the two, the president or Fox News, who's more likely to take a reasonable position? I, I really think it's Fox News. <sighs> I, I, no, I think that there are uh, no. I, I mean, I, 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 I understand the point. It's I, I think that there are elements within Fox News, you know, specifically Sean Hannity, probably being the most prominent of them, that have, that have had influence uh, over the president in certain situations. Having said that, I think that this is a very uh, unique situation where you do have, to your point, a a body of of healthcare professionals uh, and experts who uh, the president has surrounded himself with, maybe a little bit later than he probably should have, uh, that ended up influencing the narrative down the line more than you know the the media is influencing the president. Um, yeah, in this situation, I think that the way Fox News handled themselves was reprehensible. Um, I understand why they did it, because in any other situation, yeah, there's there's a point to be a counterpoint to be made uh, from a political perspective on just about anything yeah, right. that's happened yeah. over the past three years. This is one of those, you know, you saw the opposite of that coming from the left, where people were uh, putting the story out there that Trump specifically contacted Germany about getting a, a vaccine just for the U.S. and nobody else, which they, everybody retracted, quote unquote, but. You know, that narrative isn't out there at that point. The original story is. Um, so there, there's a political bent to everybody's uh, uh, perspective. Um, not this mine. is not not yours. No, <laughs> you're, you're you're just pure as, <laughs> as driven snow, aren't you? Um, it's this is I, I, for me another one of those situations where um, the 24 hour news cycle and and pundit focused news needs to take a back seat. Uh, when you're talking about a national and global health crisis that can affect literally anybody on the planet, um, you cannot politicize it. You can't play the same game that, that you normally do. You need to present the information that is coming out of government officials, healthcare ex experts, the CDC, um, important institutions that should be in charge of this and cut the bullshit for a few weeks. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. It, but again, this just seems to me to prove that we're not going to get past the, the the partisan viewpoint of this anytime soon. Yeah, and for, and for your own mental health, you would be good to not pay attention to the news as closely mm -hmm. as we are. Yeah, that's also right. Correct. So guys, as we, I just checked, and since we started this podcast, we've been doing this for an hour and 14 minutes, uh, the number of cases in the United States has gone up 800. We're up to 9,235 since we started. Yeah. This is just, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, 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 this, again, it feels like we're just on the cusp of, of really tr starting to grapple with all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
<clears throat> well, that's, that's a good note to end on, Phil. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. <laughs> You're welcome. Let me rephrase it. Rephrase it. I, I looked, and since we started this, we're only up to ninety two hundred. We only went up eight hundred. That's pretty good, guys. That's like nothing. Yeah. Oh, if you I could guess... have the uh, the the death count, uh, the real time death count next time, that would be great. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the good news is that our listeners are going to have more time to really dive into the podcast, right? I mean, you know, work and all these other distractions. You're, if you're stuck at home, listen to the podcast, enjoy, share us with others. Yeah, that mm-hmm. thing I said about not paying so much close, you know, don't pay so close attention to the news, that does not apply to this podcast. You should listen to this multiple <laughs> times, actually. Yeah. Uh. And it seems like the uh, the the live thing went well, so you know we'll we'll keep doing that as long as it keeps working. That's um, great. Yeah, uh, guys, as usual. Um, yeah, if you have uh, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, where you can find the live shows. Um, this will be up as soon as we're uh, we're done recording, uh, and then we'll put the audio out right after that. Um, what else was I saying? Uh, beers we try you can find on untapped on ios or android just search for barstool politics on there uh the podcast uh apple podcast spotify soundcloud stitcher google play music most major podcasting platforms uh review us share us like us through there um, we appreciate the support uh and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com look for a direct link on our social channels uh hats uh not hats not hats uh um uh hoodies hoodies t-shirts yeah. wow uh mugs all that kind of fun stuff um yeah so definitely check that out uh anything else guys no this is, we we did good we were in pandemic pandemic mode and we did okay <laughs> all right well hopefully you two are alive next week <laughs> a drink to that cheers <laughs> See later cheers <laughs> Shut up and sit down.